My name is Andy Clare. I'm a member here at Church on Mill, and I'm filling in for uh, Chuck, our regular preaching pastor, and I'm honored to be sharing God's Word with you this morning. Church on Mill is a Bible-believing church, so we believe that what the Bible says, God speaks. So we're going to do this morning what we do every Sunday morning. We're going to open up God's Word, listen to it, and hear God speak. For the past several months, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. Galatians is a book written by a guy named Paul. Paul started the churches that were in the region of Galatia. And when Paul started these churches, he preached the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. This gospel says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But after Paul finished preaching this gospel, he had to leave to go start other churches. And while Paul was gone, false teachers crept into the churches in Galatia and they changed the gospel. To be specific, they added legal requirements to the gospel. Grace alone through faith alone was changed to faith plus works. The entire book of Galatians is Paul laboring to restore the true gospel to these churches. Each section of the book is intended to help us see that we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done. Our passage today is answering the question, what is freedom and what is slavery in light of the gospel. I'm going to invite uh, Cody Nuppenberg to come on up and read our passage for us today. There's Bibles under the seats in front of you if you want to read along. They're, they're blue Bibles, and uh, go- the passage will be on page 566 to 567, and Cody's going to read chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me... You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who had a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the free son of the free woman, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Thank you, Cody. Every good movie 
has that one scene where you just quite aren't sure why that scene is in the movie. Right? For, for example, The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is an awesome movie. Kids love it. It's a classic. You could watch that movie hundreds of times in your life and it would still be enjoyable. Except for the flying monkeys. Did we really need to include those? If the book of Galatians was the yellow brick road and we're walking happily through the land of Oz, we just got to the, final, to the flying monkeys. Right? You, you can imagine Paul writing this letter, thinking to himself, man, I, I just don't know if they're getting it. We better send in the flying monkeys. That'll teach them to mess with the gospel. But, but look at these concepts that we have. We have a slave woman. We have a free woman. Born according to the flesh. Born through promise. Two covenants. Mount Sinai. Children for slavery, the present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, allegory. What does this all mean? This passage might feel like a pack of flying monkeys, at least at first. It's confusing and maybe a little chaotic as you read through it. We have strange ideas and many of them being presented to us. But even though this passage might seem confusing to us initially, it actually communicates precious truth for us today. This passage is one additional nugget of gospel grace that Paul has been communicating over and over and over again throughout the book of Galatians. The whole point of this passage is to say that spiritually free people are created through God's promise, not through their own works. Spiritually free people are created through God's promise, not through their own works. And what Paul is saying here is that it's always been that way and it will always be that way. Spiritually free people are created through promise, not through works. Paul does this in three steps in this passage. The first step In the first step, he says, look back to the law. Look back to the law. That's the first step. In the second step, he explains the promise. So we'll look back to the law, and then we'll explain the promise. And then the last step, thirdly, he condemns works. So this morning, we're going to look back to the law, we're going to explain the promise, and then we're going to condemn works. We're going to work through this passage. In our first three verses, verses 21 through 23, Paul says, look back to the law. In the middle of a theological debate, Paul looks back to the law. When Paul sees theological division growing, Paul doesn't go into the woods and pray for a a new revelation. Paul doesn't go to a cave to receive a vision from an angel. When Paul sees theological division growing, he doesn't look inside himself for a glimpse of inner divinity. When he sees theological division growing, he doesn't turn to herbal substances to enhance his spiritual prowess. When it comes to a theological debate, 
a theological division. Paul looks backwards to what God had already revealed. Paul labors in study, in prayer, and in reading, and then he presents his arguments. And here's the thing. Paul isn't arguing for something new. Paul isn't coming up with a new idea. He's actually arguing for something quite old. Paul sees old promises that God made coming to pass in Jesus Christ. In verse 21, Paul writes, You who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? You who want to be justified by legal requirements, you who want to be made right by what you do, you who are under the law, don't you listen to the law? Paul graduated the top of Harvard Law School, and he's about to go Ivy League on his opponents. He's going to make a legal argument against the legalists. You want to be under the law? Well, let's take a look at the law. Paul is using the term law here in in its general sense. Law could refer specifically to the Ten Commandments. It could refer to the whole book of Deuteronomy. But law sometimes refers to um, all first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And, and this is what Paul is saying. We're going to look back to the law, to these first, this first revelation of God that Moses had. Paul takes his readers back to the story of Abraham. If you look at verse 22 and 23 in our passage, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But... The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. If you're looking for a point of reference, Paul is referring back to two chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And he's referring to chapter 16, and he's referring to chapter 21. In chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah are discouraged because they don't have any children. Now, for Sarah to be a barren woman at this time point would have had a social stigma attached to it. There would have been a sense of shame for not have bearing a child. But not only that, Abraham was a wealthy guy and he had an estate. And so to not have a child left the, the, the inheritance uncertain someone outside his household might inherit it. So there is both shame and there's anxiety for Sarah and Abraham. But not only that, God had promised to Abraham that he would give Abraham a son. And that promise had not come to pass yet. So what do Abraham and Sarah do in the face of shame, anxiety, and uncertainty? What do they do? Sarah and Abraham, they take Abraham's servant, Hagar, and they say, let's give Hagar in marriage to Abraham and and she can produce offspring. 
The problems here are manifold. Not the smallest problem is the use of a vulnerable human being for selfish gain. To take a slave woman, a servant girl, and to say, you will now be the one who bears my child. Using a vulnerable human being. But additionally problematic is the violation of marriage. That in Genesis 1 and 2, God reveals that marriage would be exclusively a sexual union between one man and one woman. And we see that being violated here. Chapter 16 is a description of real historical events as they happened. But some passages in Scripture, they give us a description of what happened, but they don't serve as an example. They serve as a warning. And that's what chapter 16 is. It's describing what actually happened, and it's warning readers. Abraham and Sarah tried to bring about the blessing of God through their own efforts. Ironically, they enter into sin and they set up their family for moral decay for generations to come. Abraham does have a son through this uh, experience, though, and that son is Ishmael. So in chapter 16 of Genesis, Abraham has his first son. But it's kind of a, it's a moral debacle. But the wonderful news, the wonderful news of the gospel is that God's promises don't depend on our faithfulness. The news of the gospel is that God's promises don't depend on our faithfulness. God's promises depend on his faithfulness. So after Genesis 16, we have Genesis 21. And in Genesis 21, Sarah has a child of her own. But the thing is, it was impossible for Sarah to have a child at this point. She was decades past the point when her reproductive organs were functioning. It was impossible for her to have a child, but she does. And this child is a child of promise. This child was not brought physically into the world. This child was, was brought about through the work of God. He was not born by the will of men, but through the promise of God. Now, the most, important, the most important part of this story is the contrast between these two women. If we go back to Galatians, Paul writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But, that but is setting up a contrast. It's saying what, what came before is true, but here's what's significant. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. The slave woman produces children according to human effort. The person who is born by human effort is born into slavery. The slave woman produces children into slavery through human effort. But the free woman, 
The free woman produces children who are free. And she does this not through human effort, but through the promise of God. The slave woman gives birth to slaves. The free woman gives birth to free children. Well, what's the significance of this? Why is Paul talking about two women from a long time ago who had two sons? Well, in verse 24, Paul says this. Now this, speaking about the two women and the two sons, may be interpreted allegorically. Here come the flying monkeys, right? Allegory was a common method of interpretation in the ancient and medieval world. Originally, allegory started uh, because as ancient Greek and Roman philosophers uh, were developing ideas of, of virtue and what it looks like to run a civilization, a city, they began to realize that the ideas in our, in our myths and legends where gods come down, procreate with human wisdom, with, with human win- women who are wise, um, when gods procreate with human women, um, they're, they're basically... Uh, greedy, adulterous, um, not that great of beings. And so if these stories are the foundation of our civilization, we either need to get rid of these or we need to clean them up. Well, how, how do these ancient Greek and Roman philosophers clean up these ancient myths? They do it through allegory. And allegory is where you say, here's what the text says, but that's not actually what it means. There's a hidden meaning. There's a spiritual meaning. There's, a, there's a, a mystical meaning in this text. That's the real meaning of this text. That is the essence of allegory in the ancient world. Allegory placed a greater emphasis on an invented, hidden meaning than on the plain meaning of the text. And during the time that Paul was writing, this style of interpretation, allegory, was becoming increasingly more common among Jewish interpreters, where there were Jewish interpreters that looked at the marketing strategy of their pagan counterparts, and like, man, that marketing is working really well. We should try marketing the Old Testament like that. And they start using allegory in the Old Testament. So allegory would have been, would have been well known at this point in time. Later on, allegory became wildly popular in the church, for interpreting scripture. But allegorical interpretation generally died off after the Protestant Reformation. The primary reason that allegory dies off after the Protestant Reformation is because of a doctrine called the clarity of scripture. One of the key tenets of the Protestant Reformation was that the Bible is understandable by anyone. The clarity of Scripture as a doctrine states that the meaning of Scripture in every passage is clear to understand. Now, now this doesn't mean that every passage is as easy to understand as the next passage. But what it does mean is that there are no secret, hidden meanings in Scripture. Anyone Given time, humility, conversations, patience, 
anyone can understand the meanings of Scripture. If Paul was using the word allegory to refer to a hidden secret meaning in Scripture, we would have troubles here because because then that would undermine the claim that Scripture makes about itself, that Scripture is clear to understand. However, Paul is not using uh, the word allegory here in the same sense that his counterparts did. Paul is using it in its more general sense, that it's figuratively speaking. He is, in fact, stating that Sarah and Hagar are personal examples of a spiritual reality. He's saying that what, what was true for this specific situation is true for all situations. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Each of these women had a real historical, meaningful experience. And the meaning of their real experience is the same meaning for everyone's experience. What is figurative for Hagar and Sarah is true for all people at all times. That's what Paul means when he's saying that this, these stories, Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, It's figuratively speaking about all of our experiences. You could translate it something like this. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted as figurative for a larger truth. And then he says, these women are two covenants. How do do these two women represent two covenants? Well, Paul says, Hagar, Hagar corresponds to the covenant given at Mount Sinai. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, if if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, the movie, uh, you'll know that the Mount Sinai was where the law was given. The Ten Commandments and about 600 other laws were given at Mount Sinai to Israel. Paul is saying that Hagar and the covenant of Sinai are both mothers with children. And these mothers are slaves who produce children in slavery. If if Hagar and Mount Sinai are slaves, then the children of those uh, mothers will also be slaves. And he's saying, Hagar's son was brought about through human effort. He's in slavery. The covenant of Sinai depended on human effort. Its children are in slavery. Sarah, on the other hand, corresponds to the covenant of promise, or we could call it the covenant of grace. When God first made a covenant with Abraham, God gave the covenant unilaterally, which meant that this covenant was not dependent on on Abraham's works. It depended on God's works. The only thing that was required of Abraham was his faith, was belief. The covenant of grace was unconditioned upon anything other than faith. 
And Paul is saying that Sarah and the covenant of promise are also mothers. Sarah and the covenant of promise also have children. And, and these are free mothers, free women, giving birth to children who are free. These are children who are not brought about through human effort. They're brought about through promise, through faith, and they're free. But what does this mean for us? What does the fact that uh, one set of mothers are in slavery, giving birth to children in slavery, and one set of mothers are free, giving birth to children who are free, what does that mean for us? Well, Paul keeps on explaining, and he says, if you believe in the covenant of works, if you believe that you can be made right with God through what you do, you belong to the earthly kingdom. You belong to the present Jerusalem. How do you get to the present Jerusalem? Through human effort. If you're depending on human effort, you are in the earthly present Jerusalem. But if you believe in the covenant of grace, then you belong to a spiritual kingdom. You belong to a Jerusalem that's above. And the Jerusalem that's above can't come about through human effort. The Jerusalem that's, that's above is spiritual. And you have to be spiritually born to enter it. Look at the verse that Paul quotes coming from the prophet Isaiah. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of those who have a husband. The heavenly Jerusalem doesn't require physical birth. It doesn't require physical labor. And it doesn't require a physical husband to produce children. The heavenly Jerusalem grows as people are born spiritually. But how do you get into the Jerusalem above? What, what, if, if there's no labor, if there's no birth, if there's no husband, how can you be born into the heavenly Jerusalem? You can only gain access to the heavenly Jerusalem through an act of God on your behalf. You get there by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This is what uh, the book of John talks about in chapter 1 of John. John writes that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You must be reborn spiritually to enter this kingdom. The heavenly Jerusalem is a mother who receives children not through physical actions and deeds. The heavenly Jerusalem doesn't receive children based on what the children do. The heavenly Jerusalem receives children based on faith and based on promise through faith in Jesus Christ. 
how does this practically work out for us? How, how does understanding um, these theological ideas, how does this change my daily existence? Everyone who is in the earthly Jerusalem is a slave to what they do. All of us have standards that we're trying to meet. Our standards might be different, one person to the next, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I sit next to my wife. She has very different standards than I for a successful day. But we, but we all have some standard. And it may be moral, it may be social, it may be personal. But whatever set of standards we're living by, the Bible says, if you're living by your standards, you're in slavery. If you're living by standards, you're in slavery. Some of us have moral and legal standards that we try to live by. That was the Jewish people. And increasingly, that was the church of Galatia. That, that's why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. The Israelites had about 600 laws given to them by God. And, and if we can keep these laws then we'll be blessed. But do you see what the problem is with that? Do you see why that would lead to slavery? Every day you wake up, got to keep the laws today. You go about your day, you go to bed, and then you wake up again, got to keep the laws today. The next day, got to keep the laws today. Not a day will go by when you're not trying to keep the law. And the Bible tells us that you're in slavery. That's how a slave lives. No days off, no holidays, no PTO. You're a slave. But what's more is you will never succeed. There is no one who keeps the law. There's no one who does not sin. So not not only will you be in slavery every day for the rest of your life, you will fail. The law leads to slavery and death. But let's be honest. Most of us aren't trying to keep the Old Testament law. But we still have standards that we're striving for. And those standards are still slavery. For some of us, that standard is social. What other people think about us is the standard that we're trying to live by. How much time did you spend getting ready this morning? How much of your morning is consumed with getting your hair just right? And how much time do you spend making sure your outfit matches? How much time have you spent in the gym this week trying to get your body into just the right shape? How many of you spend more time at work than with your family trying to prove that you're something, that you've made it, that you're more than what your dad was? You're setting standards and you're living in slavery. Every day you're going to wake up and you're going to go about your day and the next day you're going to wake up you're going to have the same set of expectations that you have to meet. You're living in slavery. 
there will always be someone who is more desirable than you, more socially enjoyable to be around, more likable than you. You will fail to meet your standards all the time. You're in slavery and it leads to death. Other of us care less about what God thinks and and we hardly give a thought to what society thinks. And you say to yourself, I'm going to be a genuine person. I'm going to be true to myself. I'm not going to govern my life based on what some religious system thinks. And I'm not going to base my life based on, uh, on what society thinks. I'm going to set my own standards. Your deepest loyalty isn't necessarily to other people and what they think of you. Your deepest sense of loyalty is, is to being authentic. To being the most real you that you can be. You need to live this out and be yourself. But friends, this is, this is also slavery. The first problem with being an authentic self is that you can never actually achieve an authentic self. The minute you try to project who you really are, you're on trial. And the courtroom is filled with, with the people that you don't want to be like and the people who've really modeled what you want to be like. And you'll spend every day of your life trying to distance yourself from these people and trying to be more like these people. To try to be authentic is to be inauthentic. This is still slavery. You will never be free. Every day you will wake up striving for the same things that can never be attained. Whether you measure your life against the standard of God, against the standard of society, or against the standard of self, each time you measure yourself against that standard, you're living in slavery. You're living as a child of Hagar. You're living as a child of Mount Sinai. You're trying to earn your freedom, but you are in bondage. The Bible tells us that we are all children of Hagar by virtue of being born. We came from the womb wanting to earn our own life. We want to create a good life through our own efforts. We want to be the creator and the author of our salvation. But friends, there's only one true source of freedom. And it doesn't come through works. It comes through God's work. And we, we receive it through faith alone. Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Christian, it's likely that when you first believed in Jesus, you recognized that saving faith could only come by grace through faith. And you made that step to put faith in nothing else but in Jesus Christ. But as the months and the years have gone by, have you become in danger of living like a slave? 
Do you find yourself consumed with performance at work or at school? Do you, ha- do you have a lack of joy and a lack of peace in the regular rhythms of your life? Changing a baby's diaper, another run to the grocery store. Do you sense that your success ultimately depends on you? Paul would say that, Christian, you began in the gospel, but you're living in slavery. You're depending on your works. You're acting like Hagar was your mother. Friends, return to the gospel. Return to the one who says it is finished. Everything is finished. You need not live in guilt and you need not live in anxiety. Your identity is entirely and only found in what Christ accomplished on the cross when he took the full wrath of God on your behalf. Rest in that, Christian. Rest in that. The wrath of God down to the last drop was poured out on Christ that you could be free. So be free. There's not an ounce more of significance that you can add to or take away from your life by what you do. Rest in the freedom that comes through living by faith. It could be that some of you here are considering the claims of Jesus Christ. And, and perhaps this message has seemed a bit odd. Most people think that Christianity is about following a bunch of rules. And we've just spent the greater part of half an hour explaining how rules really don't help you. In fact, they pave the way to hell. The essence of Christianity isn't what we do to earn God's favor. The essence of Christianity is what God has already done to make us children. One of the Greek writers who opposed Christianity in the early church, he understood this. And this was the reason he objected to Christianity. His name was Celsus. Celsus was a spokesman for much of paganism when he attacked the gospel of forgiveness. And he attacked it as cheap grace. Here's what Celsus said. Those who summon people to other religions make this preliminary proclamation. Whoever has pure hands and a wise tongue. But let us hear what these let us hear what folks these Christians call. Whoever is a sinner, they say. Whoever is unwise. Whoever is a child. And in a word, whoever is a wretch. The kingdom of God will receive him. Celsus spoke as a non-believer, but his words are true. The only thing you need to do to be accepted by God is to recognize that you're in slavery to your own works and then to trust his invitation to freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. This good news is different 
from what you will hear at the Catholic Church. This good news is different from what you will hear at the Church of Latter-day Saints. This good news is different from the message that you're going to hear at the mosque on 6th Street and Forest. This good news is different from the message you'll hear from the kind Jehovah's Witnesses on Mill Ave right now. All of these religious faiths teach that faith in God is good, but it's your works that determine your standing with God. It's what you do that determines your salvation. Friends, that is not the gospel. And that does not save. It only leads to slavery. The only thing that Jesus requires is that you realize your need for him. Turn in faith to Jesus today. The wrath of God has been satisfied. We can have peace in all and every circumstance because we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are forgiven and free in, in Christ. Whoever is a sinner, whoever is unwise, whoever is a child, and in a word, whoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe this is to be a true child of Sarah. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the revelation that you have provided of yourself, that you have given us truth that we can live by. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray for my friends that are, are believers already. And Lord, I ask that they would that they would cast away the works that they've been leaning on, that they would cast away the actions that they found identity in. And I ask that, that my friends who are believers would cling always and only to the identity in Jesus Christ that comes through faith. I pray for my friends who are not yet believers or who are considering the claims of Christ. I ask, Lord, that, that they would weigh out carefully the words uh, that you've revealed to us, that the wrath of God is satisfied, that all we must do is, is turn from sin and have faith in Jesus Christ, and we can have peace with God. Lord, we pray this all in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen.